This podcast discusses cases in which a crime may have occurred. It's important to advise that all parties mentioned or generally referred to in this podcast are presumed innocent until proven guilty by law. Opinions expressed on this podcast don't necessarily reflect those of the podcast host, Murderish, or Cloud 10 Media. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please stop here and listen to the previous episodes in order so you get the full scope of this wild story. In previous episodes of Dirty Money Moves, we unfolded the story of Mary Carol McDonald, a self-proclaimed heiress who got her hands on millions of dollars by lying and scheming. We dove into Mary Carol's childhood, professional career in the TV business, some of her shady associates, and how she managed to get her hands on close to $50 million through elaborate scams and then disappear. In this episode of Dirty Money Moves, you'll hear a conversation I had with Assistant United States Attorney Catherine Ahn about prosecuting white-collar crimes. In my conversation with Catherine, we talked about some of the hurdles prosecutors face when working financial crimes cases, how she decides whether to seek an indictment, what happens after an indictment, why some white-collar crimes cases are more appealing to prosecutors than others, and so much more. While Catherine isn't able to speak directly about Mary Carol McDonald's case, listeners can apply some of what she said to Mary Carol's case in order to form their own theories about it. My wheels were absolutely spinning during the conversation with Catherine. I could have talked to her for hours. I gained a wealth of insight from Catherine and afterward, I went back to the drawing board with regard to my own theories about Mary Carol's case. It's a longer episode than usual, but well worth a listen. I think you're going to enjoy hearing from Catherine just as much as I did. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show. I have been so excited to talk to you, given your position. And I think that you can give a lot of insight into financial crimes cases, how they're prosecuted, kind of who federal prosecutors work with in these types of cases. So why don't we start with kind of just, you know, giving you your name and kind of your professional background? Of, of course. Um, so I'm happy to be here. I'll, I'll do my best to answer your questions. Uh, uh, hopefully they'll, uh, at least hit most of the marks, uh, that you're trying to, uh, uh, get answers to. Um, I have to give this caveat, which is obviously, even though I am, uh, employed by the U S department of justice, the U S attorney's office for the central district of California as a federal prosecutor, assistant U S attorney, uh, none of my comments today should be imputed to the department or to the office. They're just my personal opinion. Uh, so that's a caveat you'll hear from almost every government bureaucrat. No problem. Uh, Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I guess I would qualify as a government bureaucrat, although the first time I actually um, obtained tenure in a government position, I was horribly depressed at the idea of being a government <laughs> bureaucrat. But my uh, my background uh, sort of belies those feelings. Uh, so I, uh, you know, went to college. I went to Berkeley. I uh, went to law school at, at Berkeley Law. I went to Grad school at um, Princeton, sort of got a master's in public affairs. And around that time is when 9-11 happened. Uh, when 
I was in college, actually, which probably it dates me a little bit. Uh, and so there was this question of terrorism. What do we do about terrorism? Uh, and as someone who's interested in finance, the intersection of finance and law and criminal justice, um, that actually struck me as an interesting question and something that I should probably, you know, as an educated person who had the privileges of coming to the United States um, uh, as the first person in an immigrant family to be born in the U.S. My, my father's family were actually refugees from North Korea. Mm. Uh, I felt a personal obligation to, to sort of uh, work in this, in this area. So I ended up joining the Treasury Department right as they were ramping up their sort of economic and financial responses to illicit finance threats, in particular terrorism, but also WMD proliferation, later human rights, uh, human trafficking, animal trafficking, all that other stuff. Uh, and then eventually I was like, I kind of want to go back to this law thing, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I joined general counsel's office. I worked in, in a lot of enforcement issues and eventually made my way uh, into federal prosecution. Um, I did a stint as many DC uh, denizens will uh, have experienced themselves in the government and as a lawyer. I did a stint to the Eastern District of Virginia, who has an active SALSA special AUSA program. And through that, ended up in Central District of California, which is where I currently am, here in Los Angeles at the U.S. Attorney's Office prosecuting major fraud. Okay. So that, and which is exactly why I wanted to speak with you. I think you're, you're well qualified. And I, I was just was so <laughs> excited. Like I said before we hit record, I was so excited when, um, Amy, you know, was able to refer me to you because we've just got this crazy um, fraud case and I'll, I'll kind of give you a synopsis of it because I know that you kind of came into this cold and you really don't know anything about Mary Carol McDonald. You don't know anything about her case. So I'm going to kind of give you a synopsis of Mary Carol, the crimes she is suspected of committing, where her case stands today. And then you'll see a theme throughout, you know, the questions that I'm going to ask you. They're all going to be uh, surrounding, you know, fraud cases like Mary Carol's. So um, basically, Mary Carol McDonald, I met her in 2018. I was working for Bank of California, which is a publicly traded uh, commercial bank in downtown Los Angeles. I think they're headquartered in the OC. And uh, my colleague had been working on bringing Mary Carol McDonald in as a client. He, uh, she was referred to him by this, um, kind of high profile entertainment attorney uh, in Beverly Hills named Barry Rothman. Barry Rothman, he's represented people like the Who, the Rolling Stones, kind of high profile individuals. And he had known Mary Carroll for many years and they had worked together on some things. So the attorney, Barry Rothman, referred Mary Carroll to my colleague. And it was our job to bring in business clients, people who owned businesses, who wanted to park their business deposit somewhere, as well as mainly who needed financing for their business. So mainly my colleagues and I would be financing a lot of like commercial real estate uh, throughout the Los Angeles area. And Mary Carroll was the CEO of Bellum Entertainment, which is a TV production company based in Burbank, or it was, uh, and they kind of specialize in true crime television content. And Mary Carroll was the owner CEO of that company. So she seemed like a really good fit to bring her into the bank. But also the attorney told my colleague that Mary Carroll is the heiress to a very large fortune uh, to the tune of $80 million. She is the heiress to the McDonnell Douglas fortune. McDonnell Douglas being the 
um, aerospace manufacturing company that merged with Boeing many years ago. Um, And she had the same last name. So it was completely believable. But I think you could see where this is going. She's we found out later, you know, through our investigation, she's not an heiress. She completely lied about that. But everybody at the bank believed it. You know, she's got this successful, in air quotes, TV production company. She's the heiress to this big fortune. Why wouldn't we want to meet her? So my colleague had several meetings. He brought members of senior management in um, to meet with her. And eventually, you know, right before Mary Carroll's loan was about to close, she needed a $15 million short-term loan. And that was not out of the realm for our group. That was a not a typical loan size. It was on the larger side, but it was fairly typical. And right before her loan was about to close, um, she came into our 20-something floor of our high-rise building in downtown LA to bring us homemade pies. And again, I'm saying that in air quotes because I found out later they weren't homemade, even though Mary Carroll said they were. And that was the only time I ever met her. And she was in her 60s, I think, at the time, white woman, um, looked super wealthy. I think she was carrying a Birkin bag in one hand and two pies in the other. So she, you know, she totally looked the part of a successful CEO, heiress to a big fortune. She brought us the pies. And then a few weeks later, her loan did close. It was a line of credit, $15 million, which she would have the ability to immediately start requesting funds from drawing funds down. And that's exactly what she did. So right after the line of credit closed, she would call in and somebody from operations would answer the phone and she'd say, you know, hi, this is Mary Carroll. I need a, a an advance of $2 million. Please advance that and put that into my checking account. And I think the checking account was at another bank. So they did that. And long story short, over the week of me or over the time span of maybe a week or two, she had drawn down about $14.2 million of the 15 million. Then at some point, somebody at the bank tried to reach her, couldn't get a hold of her. She stopped answering calls. Then her first came, her first payment became due. She didn't make the payment. This is when the everybody at the bank's like, excuse my language, but oh shit, something's up. So, and then they they, they did some investigating and, and we found out that she pretty much had defrauded the bank. Every, you know, a lot of things that she had said were lies. A lot of the documents that she and her attorney, Barry Rothman, had provided were completely falsified. For example, as part of the loan. She had offered up a an investment account that was held at a different bank, and it was it had about twenty eight million dollars supposedly in that account. She had offered it up as collateral so that if she didn't make her payments, we could just go and cash in on our collateral. Well, lo and behold, the bank makes a quick phone call after the loan is approved and after she's already gotten her hands on fourteen point two million. We find out that document was falsified. This investment account doesn't even exist. And of course, you're probably thinking, how the heck does this bank fall for this and not really verify before the loan is approved that they actually do have this cash collateral and it does exist. But that, I think, was a big blunder on the bank's part. But um, and also, I should tell you that Barry Rothman really was pivotal in helping her get this loan approved. He was sort of her mouthpiece. He acted kind of as like her manager. Anytime the bank needed documents, like maybe tax returns letters to verify accounts, bank statements, he would provide those. So um, basically, she never, we never spoke with her after she just took the money and ran. And then all these rumors went about. And now I've seen in like court documents that her attorney and her are saying that she's in Dubai. And she had been telling people uh, through email and, and I think on the phone as well, 
I'm in Dubai on business. I'll be back in the States as soon as my business here is done. Well, nobody can really answer. Maybe the federal prosecutor knows where she is. Maybe the FBI knows where she is, but the public at large, we just, she's on the run. We don't know where she is. We think she might be in Dubai. Um, So the bank, of course, you know, alerted the FBI, the FBI investigated it. And uh, I should also tell you that right after she took the money and we realized we'd been defrauded, um, Barry Rothman dropped dead, the attorney. He, he died. Uh, he had a dental procedure, went home one night and basically dropped dead. And it's basically like diabetes and uh, heart issues and stuff like that. We thought it was maybe nefarious at the time. We thought, okay, maybe he knows too much. And Mary Carroll had him killed. I mean, it sounds crazy, but those things have happened. But it turns out it was nothing to do with that. He just died at a very opportune time. So I guess that, you know, he, I'm sure the FBI at some point would have like questioned him. You know, it sounds like, seems like he definitely played a role in the scam. I think, I think they were in on it together based on what I know. Um, So Mary Carroll, she leaves, she doesn't answer phone calls. And long story short, in 2019, so about a year after she took the money and ran, um, she was indicted by a federal prosecutor, Los Angeles, you know, Department of Justice, like you said, uh, on seven charges, six uh, charges of bank fraud and one charge of identity theft because she had used the name of some banker who may or may not exist. I think he's a real person, but I think that she forged documents, she or Barry, and used this person's name to say that she has this investment account, which never existed. So there's one identity theft charge. So where we're at today, you know, she was indicted in 2019. The public at large, we don't know where she is. To my knowledge, she hasn't been apprehended or brought to trial. I've seen in court documents that at some point, so she did say she was in Dubai on business, and that's in court documents. I also saw that she at some point invoked her Fifth Amendment right. So she ple- she's invoking her Fifth Amendment right. So she's really no longer speaking. She hasn't showed up, to my knowledge, for any court hearings. So that's where the case stands. And so I wanted to produce this podcast because I left the bank shortly after all this happened. It was a really big deal at the bank. And my colleagues got fired, the ones who brought her in, uh, you know, into the or tried to bring her in as a client. Um, I left the bank. I left banking. I've never gone back. But I've always been curious and borderline obsessed with Mary Carroll. Who is she? Was she was she really an heiress? I didn't know when I left the bank. We still thought maybe she's an heiress, but she's a fraudulent heiress. You know, like she takes money from banks, but maybe she's still an heiress. Um, And I've done this whole deep dive investigation. She's not an heiress. She is a prolific scam artist. She basically the scams that she runs. So Bank of California was kind of her last big scam that we know of that she got about $15 million. But before that, she's gotten multi millions of dollars, let's say about $20 million, maybe more from other financial institutions, a lot of different ones. One in particular, she got about $11 million out of. And her scam was always similar. I'm an heiress. Here's my documentation. She always would find sort of like shady attorneys, believe it or not, who would kind of vouch for her. I think they're shady. And they would you know, produce letters saying she's my client. She's a wealthy heiress. Uh, she's got all this money. Um, and so she's been able to scam multiple financial institutions. Something else she has done very successfully in her past is that she will hit up colleagues and close friends who have money. And she will tell them, I'm an heiress. 
Uh, I've got this family trust that's worth multi millions of dollars. Would you like to invest in it? And you'll get like a 20% return on your money. And they fell for it. So some of her close colleagues and friends have been attorneys and she's gotten a few million out of each of them. Um, Another thing she has done is that the Department of Labor was after her at Bellum Entertainment because she's got a history of not paying employees. You know, so her, her company, Bellum Entertainment, folded pretty quickly after she took the money from Bank of California and ran. It folded. It was kind of like a house of cards. She wasn't paying people. So and we have she's been running scams, you know, as far as, you know, investing in the family trust type stuff and taking money from institutions and getting away with it for decades. I think she's in her 70s now. So where it stands now is she's been indicted in 2019 on seven charges related to what she did at Bank of California. Um, My research shows that she's committed all these other scams and and potential crimes. Um, And we think she's in Dubai. So I guess I'll open it up with just saying, obviously, the biggest question is, why hasn't Mary Carroll been uh, apprehended and brought to trial? Um, Because she's been indicted. So I think my first question to you would be kind of walk me through what triggers a federal prosecutor to get involved in a case and seek an indictment in, in kind of this kind of case. What would how would it come to your attention and what would make you want to seek an indictment? Okay. Um, so especially if, if, if the Carroll case is in front of our office, um, I, I really can't opine on the details of that case, sure. uh, but I'm, I'm happy to talk sort of generally about uh, investigations. Um, so that's kind of a big question of what, what would want, what would drive a, a prosecutor to want to charge a case. And I think it's, it's a few things. Um, one is, uh, of course, did a crime occur, right? Uh, can I prove that crime? Um, who was harmed? And what is the public safety interest? So uh, obviously you, you want to be able to articulate what the crime, that the crime occurred. And in fraud, it's almost always, what is the lie, right? Like there's a difference between uh, a crim- like a crime and let's say a civil action. Right. So a civil action may be negligence, like you made a mistake. It maybe was a dumb mistake, but it was a mistake. Right. Um, a crime implies knowledge and intent. So a lie. Right. So first of all, you have to articulate, well, what's the lie? What's the crime? Did a crime occur? Second is, can I prove that crime? Because if, as a prosecutor, you have to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt, which is incredibly difficult. Uh, and not only do you have to prove it beyond a reasonable, reasonable doubt, you have to prove it to a jury. Uh, so uh, you have to have evidence that you can actually enter into court. So uh, if an agent comes to me and has like the most fantastical case ever and looks amazing, and I look at the evidence and I realize that none of this is admissible, then there's no crime right that I can prove. I mean, a crime occurred, but I can't prove it. So. Got it. Uh, I, I'm not able to take that case as is. Usually at that point, we would try to actually find evidence that is admissible. Um, uh, and that's not to imply that the evidence was obtained extrajudicially. Sometimes it's just like you need uh, a business records declaration to prove that these documents that the agent got are in fact authentic, right? So okay. just like little evidentiary rules that need to be met. Uh, so did a crime occur? Can I prove that crime? Um, sort of scope and harm, right? So uh, as a federal prosecutor, uh, 
you often have to ask yourself, is this case the type of case that merits the full resources of the federal government? Got it. Um, Because, you know, we have different levels of government. We have state and local prosecutors. We have federal prosecutors. Uh, The federal government, as you know, is a government of limited jurisdiction. uh, And we don't have to take every case, every crime that comes across our desk. In fact, it would be improper because we're not really reactive uh, in the sense that like your car gets broken into. You don't run to the U.S. attorney's office. You run to the district attorney's office or rather to the um, uh, police department. So the question is, you know, what's the scope of the, of the crime? What's the harm? And in some cases, maybe the, the scope of the crime is quite large, right? So it's a conspiracy, multi, multi-millions of dollars. Um, this, uh, this particular crime, uh, you know, had a significant impact on a particular financial institution or a particular group, or, you know, it's the qualitative nature of the crime. So even though it wasn't a ton of money, like let's say just like $2.5 million, uh, it, the criminal was targeting particularly vulnerable populations, the elderly, uh, immigrants who could not speak English, disabled individuals. Uh, and there's a qualitative element to that where you, you want to seek justice for these individuals that maybe individually they each only lost like, only lost like $300,000, but to them, that's their entire life savings. And now they're facing the prospect of homelessness. That qualitatively feels much worse than, let's say, a million dollar loss to a you know, $2 billion institution. Right. Uh, so scope and harm. Uh, and then public interest, right? Public safety. So uh, let's say like in, in the, for a particular individual, like the particular impact of that specific instance of the crime is not terribly huge. Uh, the institution can absorb the loss fairly easily. There's no indication that they've particularly like targeted vulnerable populations, but it's like the millionth time they've, <laughs> they've, they've done this crime. And it's piecing together sort of the history of this person's criminality takes a lot of effort and a lot of work and maybe spans multiple jurisdictions. Okay. Um, that is a classically a federal uh, investigation because it's broad in scope. It can involve multiple jurisdictions. It involves sort of a lot of resources, a lot of collaboration across agencies, but also there's a public safety and public interest component. So if you are a local prosecutor, you may have limited resources. You are, you know, basically responsible for, you're the primary sort of office responsible for general community and public safety. There's a lot on your plate. So you may not be able to go to, you know, District of Nevada, to the UAE, to, you know, potential Chinese investors, like, do you know mutual legal assistance treaty requests MLATs to other jurisdictions like all that takes significant time and resources and instead you're just going to prosecute this one crime right mm-hmm. and so as a result that individual that defendant may get a minimal prison sentence uh that isn't really sufficient to address the public safety need but as a federal prosecutor you can bring all those resources to bear uh, you can um, either bring it in at sentencing or, you know, in the charging document, but you can seek a much higher level of consequence because you are able to do the investigation, right? Um, so that's, those are the types of things that I would look at uh, in, term, into, in sort of making a decision about whether or not to prosecute. 
Um, and but that decision is not necessarily like made within 24 hours of a case coming to me. It may be made over the course of weeks, over the course of months, as evidence comes in and you start thinking about what happened, who was harmed, what was the lie. Of course, where did the money go? All that other stuff. Um, but essentially, those are sort of some of the factors that we would consider. Well, everything you said is my wheels are spinning now because that was very insightful. And thank you for that. Because, you know, in Mary Carroll's case, you know, she's she's been indicted on charges related to what she did to a commercial bank that has a few billion in assets. You know, let's say I, I haven't checked it, but, um, you know, so that's one thing. So they they can absorb that loss. You know, I would imagine right easier than maybe just an individual or vulnerable individual could. That said. Um, you know, my research and obviously federal prosecutors and the FBI have way better resources than I do, but I have definitely been able to see a vicious pattern in Mary Carroll that she has time and time and time again, ripped people off and scammed people. You know, some of them are financial institutions, numerous financial institutions, multi-millions of dollars, but also individuals. Um, Now, these individuals that I can find aren't necessarily what you would say, like vulnerable individuals. These are attorneys and former colleagues and and things like that. But she's also gotten multi-millions of dollars out of them through a different scam. Like, hey, do you want to invest in my family trust? Um, She also didn't pay her employees and they've got, you know, civil claims actively going against her. So I guess, you know, I'm thinking on, on, on its face, you know, I don't know that the Bank of California alleged scam has much jury appeal right? Because it's a public, it's a, it's a bank, you know, it's not an individual person, but I wonder if a federal prosecutor could potentially dig up all this other stuff in her past and get that entered into their case and go, but look, it's not just bank of California. She is a prolific scam artist who's gotten her hands on what I've been able to find about $50 million, five zero. So it's, it's a lot. Um, And bring some of those other cases into court to make it you know, more jury, more appeal to a jury and, and, and show that she is a public harm because she has a pattern of doing this over decades and she's gotten her hands on like $50 million. What are your thoughts on that? Could a federal prosecutor potentially get that other stuff if they dug it up, brought into the Bank of California case? So I, I, I don't know enough about the Mary, Mary Carroll sure. sort of case and evidence. Uh, plus, I, I don't want to opine on that specifically, but sure. I can sort of talk through about some of the things that go through at least my mind when I think about charging. Um, it's always a cost benefit analysis uh, because as a federal prosecutor, you know that uh, at trial, uh, sort of the guilt phase of, a tr- of, of the case, you have to prove to the jury the specific charges that you indicted, right? Beyond a reasonable doubt and the elements of those charges. Um, and so the trial is all about the crime, the conduct, right? Sentencing is different, right? I so see. once you obtain a conviction, right, it's up to the government uh, to make its best case, the defense makes its best case to the judge as to what sentence this defendant uh, should get. And it goes beyond just the immediate conduct for which the defendant was committed. Um, there's this thing called criminal history where you can bring in prior crimes uh, of conviction or under sort of what's called 18 U.S.C. 3553A factors, 
um, sort of the nature and circumstances of the offense, the the uh, history and characteristics of the defendant. So you can argue to the judge at a much lower burden of proof that this person is a danger to the community and here's why. And you still need to prove it up. Right? Sure. You still need to prove it up. But um, the standard of proof is lower, which is beneficial. You're speaking to a judge who is you know, educated in the law, has lots of experience uh, sort of adjudicating these, these issues. Um, so you don't have to go into the complicated nuances of a legal argument uh, and try to simplify it for a jury. Uh, instead, you can just make the legal argument and the judge will get it. Uh, so uh, there is a question of, do I want to have to prove all this stuff in front of a jury who may or may not have any legal experience? And really, you don't want them to bring sort of outside legal analysis to the case, right? You want them to sort of adjudicate the facts. But you nonetheless have the burden of proving those facts uh, and meeting the legal obligation beyond a reasonable doubt if you bring it in at trial, right? And the length of the trial uh, is also a, a consideration. So if you, let's say uh, you have a defendant who has a history of uh, fraud crimes um, and maybe, you know, of the potential 10 different fraud schemes they ran, there's only like one conviction. So uh, you, if you want to bring in those other nine schemes, you'd have to, into trial, you either have to either charge them or somehow charge so that it's relevant to the crime that you charged. But then you have to explain to the jury how these are all related to the crime that's being charged and or prove that up as individual charges. Okay. And so you can end up exponentially increasing the time at trial. Um, and then you can also confuse the jury because the jury can be like, well, what are you at? Are we deciding on those other nine, cri nine tr crimes that are not charged mm -hmm. or deciding this crime that is charged? Or uh, now we have these like nine disparate crimes and I don't really understand how they're related. How are they related? And right. I know the judge said they're legally related, but I don't really understand the relationship. Uh, and then you for each of those instances, you have to bring witnesses. Right. So yeah. I can't just get up and like explain it to people. Um, a trial is sort of weird because uh, it, you don't, the jury doesn't get like a coherent sort of story that wraps everything up until really the end mm -hmm. when I, as a prosecutor, give the closing argument. So instead, it's a little bit like sort of uh, like flashes of memory, right? Flashes of factual things brought up by witnesses and then a whole bunch of documents that look really dry and really boring and the jury has to somehow keep it all in their head until somebody can bring it together for them. Or maybe they start developing their own theories. You know, there is an opening, uh, opening statement where the prosecutor tries to lay it out. But the opening statement is uh, we're sort of obligated to not make it argumentative. So it's supposed to be fairly dry. Um, and as a result, the more complicated the factual uh, sort of the factual presentation is the more likely you run the risk of just confusing the jury, which is bad. Right? Yes. Like, as a, as a prosecutor, you want everything to be super simple, right? Yes. Uh, and if you cannot tell a simple story, then you, you, you should reconsider your jury strategy. Right. Um, and so uh, those are a lot of the considerations that come into play. And if, if you think as a prosecutor, that you can bring in it at sentencing, that it doesn't actually impact the ultimate sentence, then why? Why, why make it unnecessarily complicated? Right. Um, so at, at trial, when I think 
about charging, I think about what am I going to actually tell the jury? What's the story I'm going to tell? Is that story coherent? Um, and, uh, you know, uh, if I have a coherent story that is simple and get us the conviction for the conduct that is like the most serious and readily provable, um, and I know that all this other stuff is going to come in at sentencing, then honestly, I, I think from, for me, the best sort of strategy is to create a simple story for trial, get your conviction, and then bring it in at sentencing. You just made, you just, first of all, you hit the nail right on the head because I am speaking from experience. I mean, I sat on a two week long uh, first degree murder trial as a mm -hmm. jury member. And you're absolutely right because you have to keep it as simple as possible because it's so easy to get lost. And you're absolutely right. You know, one day we get bursts of this information and this information, but the next day it's a totally different topic that the lawyers are, are, are discussing and presenting witnesses for. So I have to try and remember what happened the day before. Okay. Now we're focused on this. And then, like you said, they tie it all up in a pretty bow, hopefully at the end. And if you just bring too much in too many witnesses, too much time, like, gosh, the OJ Simpson trial might be a perfect example, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but you're, you're right about that. So um, I can see in Mary Carroll's case specifically her her past and and what she's been doing over the last few decades and the scams and the you know the fraud and all of this that she's been committing it, it is so complex even my researcher and i like i have to go back and re-listen to previous podcast episodes to remind myself of the actual facts and what happened it is completely it could i could see how if a federal prosecutor tried to just throw this all at a jury rather than just sort of focusing on, okay, Bank of California, get my conviction. And then maybe at sentencing, I can bring some of her previous victims in or some other information, you know, to try and get a harsher sentence. But I, I could see a jury just losing their minds because even just the Bank of California thing itself is going to be intricate to explain and, and to make sure that they understand. And um, sort of simplify it. But um, so that makes so much sense what you just said. And so if if a federal prosecutor, I guess maybe you specifically, but in general, if a federal prosecutor decides to seek an indictment and gets an indictment, is that a signal that that federal prosecutor thinks this case could be won in front of a jury, that they think it does have some jury appeal and that they could prove the case? I mean, what does it mean that they did actually decide to seek and get an indictment? So, so generally, um, if a federal prosecutor brings an indictment, it means that, you know, they believe that the crime occurs. Uh, and that's not just, you know, because an indictment exists. It's because as a prosecutor, I have ethical obligations that are, I think, on top of my normal ethical obligations as an attorney, as an officer of the court, et cetera, et cetera. Like all attorneys are technically officers of the court. We have a duty of candor to the court. But um, as a prosecutor, it's almost like you have, you really have like a very significant duty of candor to the court um, in the sense that the judge uh, expects the government to, and holds the government to like a higher standard to some extent. And that's written into the ABA sort of model professional rules. It's written into the CalBar professional rules. Uh, it's written within sort of DOJ internal professional rules. Um, and at its very basic level, I as a prosecutor are, am ethically barred from proceeding even to sort of 
to, to, to charge a case and continue charging a case if I do not think that there is probable cause to believe that a crime occurred. Probable cause is very low, mm-hmm. right? It's a pretty low bar. Um, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, but it's the bar uh, that you have to meet to bring a complaint, right? A charging document to seek an arrest, uh, to get legal process, right? You have to probable cause to believe that a crime occurred. So if I don't have that, I, as a prosecutor, am ethically barred from proceeding. And I have had cases where I'm sitting through and looking to the evidence, and it may or may not have already been charged. And I start to question whether or not I have probable cause to believe that a crime occurred and or I have probable cause uh, to believe that I can prove this crime in, in any world, in any scenario. And at that point, I have gone to supervisors and said, I have a concern. I have a concern about this. And that's my obligation. I have to do that. I am ethically bound to do that. Um, and so uh, if a prosecutor has brought an indictment, they are under an ethical obligation to believe, at least at a probable cause level, that that crime occurred and they can prove that crime in court. Um, in terms of the sort of structure of an indictment, you know, different prosecutors have different approaches. Um, you know, I have definitely seen indictments that are incredibly complicated. And I look at the indictment and I'm like, I have, you know, multiple degrees focusing on finance and economics. I still am like, my eyes are glazing over. Right? And I'm like a lawyer. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I've definitely seen those types of indictments uh, and more power to the attorney that brought that, you know, you're very smart and I'm thoroughly <laughs> convinced of your intelligence. Uh, and maybe you have some magic power that it can explain this to the jury. Um, my approach is, uh, as I sort of like sort of foreshadowed it, is simple is better. If I can't tell this story simply, then I need to reconsider what story I'm telling. Uh, especially since I often think like, well, what's, what's the consequence I'm looking for? Uh, and if I can achieve that consequence with a simpler story, then go for the simpler story. Uh, and maybe it's because like, I don't know, I, I'm a simple person. I have simple pleasures in life. I'm like, I like to think about things in a simple manner. Um, and so uh, uh, when I think about an indictment, I try to structure it very clearly in plain language as much as possible. And sometimes that's not always possible because you have to be very precise in the words that you use in an indictment. Um, and every word is going to be scrutinized and et cetera, et cetera. But the simpler the language, the plainer the language, the better. Because nine times out of a 10, that indictment is going to be read to the jury. And if the indictment's 100 pages long, First of all, the judge will kill you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, uh, so then you have to like cut, cut parts and like have this Frankenstein version of the indictment. Uh, and then that's going to be even more confusing. So if I can tell the story of an indictment of, of, the, of the crime in the indictment simply, that means right from the get go at jury selection, the jury is going to really be able to understand what they're being asked to decide from the get go. Got it. Uh, And then I've got a leg up because as the evidence rolls in, as they start thinking about things, they understand my theory of the case because my theory of the case is very simple, which is somebody lied. These are the people who lied. These are the people they lied to. Right. And this is the consequence. Every fraud, that's basically it. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, And if you can tell that, and usually there's like an additional component, which is not necessarily legally required, but um, what's the motivation? 
right? Why did this person lie? Uh, and that's actually usually the most interesting part for the jury. Um, but if I can tell that story very simply, then I'm nine tenths of the way there. And so now that, you know, it lets an indictment has, you know, they've gotten an indictment on Mary Carroll. It was in 2019. So I guess in general, what pressures, so does the clock start ticking and what kind of pressures are on federal prosecutors, if any, to now work that case, bring it to a conclusion? Are mm-hmm. there pressures and, and maybe what reasons might we still be three years out in general from an indictment and still know, you know, that they haven't been apprehended, they haven't been brought to trial, but kind of what pressures exist for a federal prosecutor after they've gotten an indictment exists to go and now work that case and bring it to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, um, especially in the federal arena, um, you have all the evidence you need before you bring the indictment. There, okay. there are some, there are certain exceptions, right? So there are like genuinely reactive cases uh, where um, the crime is occurring and you need to take action to stop the bleeding. Um, and so in those cases, you might bring a complaint, uh, which is essentially a criminal complaint, which a prosecutor uh, works with an agent uh, to bring forward to a, a judge. There's a probable cause uh, burden of proof, which is, there's, I, I think there's probable cause to believe a crime occurred. Uh, and then with that complaint, you can you know, arrest somebody. You can um, do a bunch of other things. Uh, uh, you can obtain search warrants or seizure warrants to try and get the money back before it like, disappears into the ether. Mm. There's a bunch of stuff you can do uh, with that type of probable cause-based legal process. But let's say you bring a complaint. Um, and once you bring a complaint, there's something called the Speedy Trial Act where you have 30 days to bring an indictment. An indictment is uh, basically a finding by a grand jury uh, that uh, this crime occurred, right? And then once the indictment is brought under the Speedy Trial Act, you have 70 days for the trial to begin, unless there's a finding by a judge that interest of justice, et cetera, can kick out the trial date. Uh, And so there's there's incredible time pressure once formal charging documents are brought. and as a result, especially in fraud, where the crime is sort of historical, right? Uh, you, you want to have all your ducks in a row before you bring the indictment. Um, unless, again, there's like a, 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 some other reason why you need that person to be in handcuffs, right? So, for example, if you, for some reason, receive information to indicate that the defendant's imminently about to flee, that would be a reason to like move more quickly, uh, put that person uh, in federal custody so they don't disappear on you. Um, uh, and there are problems when the defendant disappears. Uh, one is uh, unlike in civil process. So you can obtain a default judgment in civil process. So if I, if, if I as a defrauded victim, I'm suing the person that defrauded me uh, and that person is on notice of the, uh, of, of the civil case, and that person flees, I can obtain, or I can seek to obtain a default judgment from the court uh, in, the def- in the sort of person's absence. 
And then I can try and recoup, you know, my assets, my sort of financial loss. That does not work in criminal court. Got it. Because the defendant has a right to trial. Uh, And uh, the defendant has a right to be present for a lot of different things. Um, And so uh, there are situations where you can obtain certain sort of default, essentially the equivalent of a default uh, for a defendant. But that's after conviction. For the conviction phase, the defendant 100% has to be present Mm -hmm. and or has to knowingly waive presence. But even then, that's as a prosecutor, I would be um, a little nervous about that because you don't want the defendant to come back around on appeal and be like, I didn't knowingly waive presence. I didn't participate in any of the decisions at trial because I wasn't there. I wasn't physically able to participate. And then before you know it, your convictions unravel. Um, And so you as a prosecutor, you want the defendant to be present uh, because they have a constitutional right to uh, participate in sort of a lot of the decisions and to be have this right to trial, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's why if you think the defendant's going to flee, <laughs> you want to put them in federal custody. It's also a problem if the defendant flees after charging. Uh, so because uh, you're kind of stuck, uh, you, you want to proceed um, and but you can't proceed because the defendant's not there. And there's there's a really a, a number of reasons why that's problematic. Um, Obviously, you know, as an alumnus of the Eastern District of Virginia, which is also known as the rocket docket, there's this concept that's literally inscribed, you know, at the face of the federal courthouse in Alexandria, which is justice delayed is justice denied. Right. Mm. So um, there are a number of stakeholders involved in a criminal investigation and criminal prosecution. And, um, you know, top of mind or what should be top of mind are the victims of the crime. Right. So the victims of the crime obviously want to see justice done. They want to have an opportunity to sort of tell their story if they're going to you know, be called upon as witnesses. Um, and uh, often they want or they need some kind of, to the extent that it's available, financial um, restoration. So if in the case of vulnerable victims where like the $300,000 that were stolen was their entire life savings, it's hard to wait four years, right, to get that money back to the extent that the money still exists. And so, and you cannot give them that money back, right, unless the defendant agrees, right? So you seize it, you, you find it wherever it is, you seize it, and the defendant agrees to give it back to the victims before the conviction, because, you know, the defendant wants to play nice. Or if the defendant is not playing nice, which is probably the case if they fled, uh, you have to wait till a conviction. because you cannot, these people are not technically victims in the eyes of the court if no crime occurred. So you have to, the, the, the conviction has to come before, you know, the restoration of the funds to the victims. Um, so there's that. Uh, there's also staleness, which is the evidence. Um, so like a document is a document, right? So uh, a record of a bank transaction remains there and presum- presumably is preserved because I, as a prosecutor, have said, do not delete this data and or I've seized the data and I've put it in a pl- safe place that is protected from deletion. But a document is not sufficient to tell a story. People are necessary to tell a story and people's memories can fade, over, mm-hmm. even victims, right? Even victims, their memories can fade over time. So obviously as, a, as an investigator, you want to preserve that recollection in reports and memoranda and other things. But 
ultimately the report is not what gets put into evidence, right? The, the victim's testimony, the witness's testimony is what's presented to the jury. And the more time that passes, the more you run the risk of that recollection being slightly fuzzy or slightly changed. And you can refresh that recollection, right? You can be like, well, do you recall, you know, you know, giving an interview with to, you know, special agent so-and-so in 2018? Yes. Would it refresh your memory to look at that report? Yes. Um, and the defense will object, et cetera, et cetera. But you can refresh that recollection. But as a juror, you might be like, well, this victim is telling me that they are completely devastated by this thing, but they can't remember, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it starts feeling a little disingenuous, even though it's a completely normal human phenomenon. Totally. Yes. Uh, and so you start running that risk as well. And then you start to run, running the risk of like all the people who can authenticate your documents, like somehow disappearing. So the, the business custodian of records, right? So you need a custodian of records to prove that these documents are authentic. And usually you can get a declaration, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes, uh, you know, the authenticity is challenged or there's some kind of mistake or hiccup in the process where you have to go back and reestablish authenticity. The, law, the more time that passes, the less likely you're going to get somebody who actually um, remembers those records or maybe the record making process has changed. Or there's just like a lot of things that can happen as time passes um, that prevent you from being able to bring your evidence in court. So uh, the new records custodian may be like, yes, I've been here for 20 years, but that document is 50 years old. And I have no idea how you got that document. We don't even have that database anymore. And so if you haven't gotten all your ducks in a row in an airtight way uh, that can, you can bring it into court, those documents aren't coming in. Mm. And now you just don't have you just don't have your case or you realize that you have to prove these other documents like emails or other things. Uh, you don't realize that it's a key component of how you want to tell the story until like maybe a month out of trial because it's not legally required, but it's important in sort of the narrative of the motivation, the narrative you want to tell the jury. Uh, and if now, you know, 15 years have passed. How are you going to authenticate those documents? Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's a, a bunch of factors that come into play when the case gets super old. Uh, and it, it really harms you as a prosecutor, your ability to sort of tell a seamless story easily in an admissible, evidentiary admissible way. Um, so no prosecutor <laughs> wants their defendant to flee, right? You want it to like proceed like on a nice little timeline um, because the last thing you want to do is to have this great case. And then 15 years later, you, when you finally get the defendant, you realize that like 60% of your evidence now have admissibility problems. So, and you know, the time thing. And, and, and so if you have, I guess what, what I'm thinking about is that when Mary Carroll was indicted, I think that a lot of people believe she was already out of the country by the time she had been indicted. I, I, we rumors and based on talking to different people, we believe she had basically fled pretty quickly after she got that Bank of California money and the indictment didn't come until the following year. So assuming a federal prosecutor got an indictment against her, but she was already gone. She was already out of the country. 
And then layering on top of that, assuming she is in Dubai, which I don't think based on my research, Dubai, like the United Emirates has a United Arab Emirates has an extradition treaty. So I don't know. Let's just say she's still there. I don't know how long she'll be able to stay there or somebody could stay there who's not a permanent resident. But, you know, I guess obviously somebody who does flee, who's out of the country, dealing with a person who's been indicted, who's out of the country is probably just adds so much complication to things. Now, you know, would there ever be a motivation in a case like this where a federal prosecutor would work with other agencies to try and go get that person and bring them to the state so that they could, you know, get a verdict in this case? Or is it just all based on like, okay, there's no extradition treaty based on maybe where she is, which country she's in? Like, would a federal prosecutor ever be motivated to try and maybe use tactics to, to get her back to the country? Or, or, you know, is this crime maybe just not this alleged crime, not really enough? It's not significant enough to do that, maybe. I think um, as a general matter, you know, uh, as I sort of alluded to earlier, um, what's, if, you, if you've decided that a case is significant enough to charge, you, you definitely want to bring it to some kind of close, right? Although, you know, it, it can depend, right? So, um, so for example, the Department of Justice has charged a number of crimes where there's probably very little chance of getting the defendant, right? So um, uh, Chinese uh, bad actors and the world of cyber crime, likelihood of getting US jurisdiction over those people, like our physical hands on them so they can bring them to trial, pretty low. But nonetheless, there's like a justice interest component to bringing that charge, bringing those indictments, because to some extent, it's a, we see what you're doing and there's going to be consequences. Uh, This is one of those consequences. So in in certain exceptional circumstances, um, the U.S. Department of Justice might bring a case and charges where there is low likelihood of actually getting the defendant and getting a conviction. But most cases, right, you bring charges because you want, in some senses, a consequence, a conviction. Um, And again, I can't speak to Mary Carroll's case specifically, but generally when you have a formal legal document that presents a charge, it can open up avenues of pursuit that are not or that are not there uh, otherwise. So if I, as a prosecutor, want cooperation from a, 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 a partnering jurisdiction, they're going to ask me, well, what is this person accused of? Well, how can you prove that? How do we know that they are doing that? So I can't just be like, yeah, I think this person might have committed a crime and we probably would bring charges. And yeah, the evidence is like, I think it's there. You know, like that's not going to work. Right. right. <laughs> like they want something like a formal official legal document. And sometimes it's a complaint, right? Like a, something signed off by a magistrate judge with a sworn affidavit from an agent. Um, and, and sometimes that's sufficient, but an indictment can, can take you a lot farther, right? Uh, in addition, the US government, you know, we have something called uh, the death penalty, right? Mm-hmm. So in uh, a lot of jurisdictions under UN convention, um, will refuse to assist in the extradition of somebody if they think that we're going to uh, seek capital punishment. Because in their jurisdiction, um, 
that's not permissible, right? right. So um, having an indictment uh, and sort of articulating that this is sort of what, these are the charges that we are seeking extradition for, uh, it's not a capital offense. We're not going to seek capital offense. These are the four corners of the thing that we're going to charge them with or prosecute them with. That can be very helpful uh, because now they know that, you know, you're not going to seek the death penalty. Fraud, very few fraud cases. Can't think of any. Sure. <laughs> the death penalty. <laughs> I know um, some of her victims probably would maybe want to seek the death penalty. <laughs> That's neither yeah. here nor there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that can be very helpful. So there are, you know, tactical reasons uh, why you would might bring a charge, a formal charging document to assist in extradition. Um, there are also others, you know, sort of reasons, right? So like, if you think about goals of criminal prosecution, you know, public safety, public interest is part of it. Uh, and some of that is um, uh, transparency, right? Sort of the sunlight. So if this person is able to continue perpetrating, like not necessarily Mary Carroll, but the defendant, is able to continue perpetrating sort of a history of crimes because nobody knows about this person's prior history of crimes, charging that person in a federal document can maybe be like, hey, this person's a criminal or at, at, at the very least, this person is accused of a crime. Um, and uh, it gives sort of notice to the banking institutions that this person is you know, uh, charged uh, and potentially a financial risk. And hopefully the banks will have done sufficient due diligence so that they can do a simple Google search and be like, oh, wait, oh, this person is charged in Los Angeles. Maybe that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can help at least through the publication of an indictment uh, limit the public harms that this person is able to perpetrate. An indictment can do that in a way that a criminal complaint often cannot, because in many cases, the criminal complaint through the affidavit will discuss law enforcement techniques or, or, or go into much more detail than an indictment would. And there may be concerns about making that public. Not always, right? Many criminal complaints uh, are publicly available. And so those concerns may not exist, right? But certainly most indictments, there are some under seal indictments, but most indictments um, are, you know, can be publicly named. You can get sort of media attention to it, et cetera. Uh, and that can go a long way in publicizing the risk that this person may pose to the financial institution and to the community at large. Okay, I'm so glad you brought that up because one of my questions is specifically about an, a sealed indictment. Because in Mary Carroll's case, which I know you can't speak to, but her her indictment actually was sealed mm-hmm. uh, at the onset, and then I want to say several months later, it was unsealed. So not speaking specifically about her, but in a financial crimes case, what are some reasons why an indictment would be sealed? And I think what you're saying is it's more rare than it is the rule, right? Mm-hmm. It's a little more rare to, to have it sealed. So what maybe what are some reasons uh, an indictment would be sealed in a financial crimes case? So uh, it is rare. Uh, um, the... Primarily, it's, you know, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, Privacy, right? Uh, Maybe there's some information in there that raises privacy considerations, uh, but usually that would be, you would just take care of that through redaction. The most common thing is that it reveals um, other targets of the investigation, um, and you're not yet ready to let the targets know that they're the target of investigation. So let's say I'm, you know, 
I've charged a fraud conspiracy. Uh, and in the indictment, it becomes pretty obvious who like co-conspirator one, co-conspirator two are. Uh, and I think that those people are flight risks. Um, but there's, for some reason, like there's a reason why I had to bring the indictment. Maybe I brought a complaint and I'm on the 30 day clock and now I have to bring this indictment. Uh, so I bring the indictment with the charges that I want, but I'm worried that co-conspirator one and two are going to flee if they realize that I'm onto them. Uh, and so I seal that indictment until I can get cuffs on co-conspirator one, co-conspirator two. And then once I get cuffs on them, they bring in for the initial uh, initial appearance for the magistrate court, at that point, we would seek unsealing of the indictment because now there's no reason to keep it under seal and they're entitled okay. to know the charges against them. Um, so that's a very common reason. And that's across, you know, different types of crimes, right? You can imagine in drug conspiracies, violent crime conspiracies, um, you know, that you may have a cooperator early on, uh, the cooperator gives you sufficient information to bring an indictment, but, you know, uh, you haven't necessarily like arrested everyone that you think is going to flee. And so you wait until all the people are arrested. Uh, another reason might be safety of, let's say, a cooperator. So uh, the cooperator is your primary source of information. It's pretty clear from the charges, like who the cooperator is and or it's like, like the people who know will know. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want for the safety of that cooperator you want to make sure that the, the, the most likely people to seek retribution are going to be in federal custody and or in some kind of controlled space before you let the entire public know who the, who, who, like what the nature of the charges are and potentially the cooperator, right? Um, okay, so that, that makes that might perfect be sense. Reason. That, that makes uh, perfect sense. And um, I'm sorry to cut you off. I, I just had a no. thought on... Um, would it ever be, would an indictment ever be sealed in order to not alert the primary conspirator that they're kind of, that, that an indictment has been uh, gotten against them for lack of a better term? Like, yes. would uh, there would be. Okay. So that could, yes, could happen. Okay. Yes. Yes. So, so for example, let's say, uh, I think, um, I think this person is a flight risk, uh, and, or this person has fled. Uh, and I think I'm pretty close to arresting them and or I want to arrest them before they flee. Uh, you don't want to give them more motivation to change their behavior. Usually if so, there's something called like pattern of life. Right. Whereas um, if you if you're observing somebody uh, either for like some investigative reason, national security reason, whatever, uh, you want to and for some reason, like you want to arrest them or whatever. You, you want to understand what their pattern of life is so that you can plan um, an operation that will safely bring that person into custody. And when I say safely, I mean, not just for the agents involved in executing the operation, but also the person that you're trying to arrest and the mm -hmm. people around them, right? You, you want a controlled environment so that uh, they don't do something dumb, right? That puts them or other people at risk. And uh, you don't um, bring in innocent bystanders into a realm, in, in sort of the sphere where they might be at risk, right? Okay. So where things go off the rails is like they realize something happened, they go on a wild car chase. You're, you're, that's like terrible, right? Because now there's all sorts of potential collateral damage. Um, desperate people do desperate things. Uh, you, you just, you, you want a controlled space. And so you want to think about, you want to establish the pattern of life. 
so that you can set up an operation to bring them in safely. What disrupts that pattern of life is exogenous shocks, right? Things outside of their normal sphere that may cause a change in behavior. And one of those things is a federal indictment, right? <laughs> I don't uh, know why. I can't imagine why. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Uh, so you, that's like, you know, obviously something that might cause a change in behavior. Uh, so, you know, getting coughs on that person is, is obviously one consideration. The other thing is evidence gathering. So maybe you have sufficient evidence to bring the indictment and you're ready to prove your case, but you're still gathering evidence, right? So maybe they're continuing to perpetrate crimes. Uh, and um, as, a, as a fraud prosecutor, it's not just like, can I prove this crime? Part of it is like, where's the money, right? Because you want to get the money back or you want to get substitute assets because part of it is you want to try and make the victims whole. And so, um, and that's always an active question, right? That's sometimes it's in the past because the money has dissipated and there's no way of getting it back. But a lot of times it's an active question. It's, it's something that you're actively pursuing. And maybe you found their secret bank account. Maybe you found the secret you know, crypto account or literally in some cases, the chest of gold coins, right? Like mm-hmm. whatever, right? Um, and you don't want them to move the money and they will 100% move it if you think that, if they think that you found it, right? Sure, yeah. And so you want like, literally you're like, nobody move. Like, <laughs> and, and so part of the thing that will cause them to move that money potentially is a federal indictment because all of a sudden the risk that you're, that as a, as a, as a person who stole the money, the risk that you're going to lose control of that money becomes a lot higher once mm-hmm. you realize that the federal government has correctly identified all the ways that you actually fraudulently got that money. Okay. So that might be another reason to keep it under seal, right? Which is until you can lock down the money, right? You don't want anyone who can move that money to actually do it before you've been able to lock it down. One of the questions, which it may be a dumb question to you, but just me not being in the legal field, you know, there's been court records that have said that that have stated that she is, in fact, in Dubai, you know, and she's got an attorney working her case who's appeared in court. Now, does a defense attorney have an obligation to share their client's actual location if they've been indicted or is that attorney client privilege? They don't have to say, well, I know for a fact my client's not in Dubai, they're in Colorado. I mean, does an attorney, does a defense attorney have an obligation to be truthful with the court if they know their client is in fact in Dubai or, or like, or can they just keep that as privileged information? Well, there's, um, so there's an exception called a fraud crime exception to privilege. Uh, which is um, things that are actively uh, supporting um, the the perpetration of a fraud or a perpetration of a crime are is not privileged, right? Because you know there's the attorney-client privilege. A lot of things in sort of like criminal justice is based around like societal good, right? So like the reason why the attorney-client privilege exists is because you want um, a client and their attorney to be able to speak to speak frankly, to speak candidly, because that helps the justice system along. Uh, a defense attorney cannot, I think, 
effectively advocate for a client if they have no idea what the hell is happening, right? Mm. Uh, and I, as a prosecutor, I actually really appreciate it when defense counsel knows what's happening, knows the law, and knows their arguments, right? Because then there's something that I can work with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a defense counsel has no idea what's happening. That case is not getting resolved because they just don't know what's happening. And or uh, I have to work twice as hard to make sure that whatever resolution occurs doesn't get unwound through ineffective assistance of counsel, right? Um, so I, I actually appreciate it when defense counsel is well-informed, uh, knowledgeable, and has articulated, at least in their own mind, the legal arguments to present so that we can actually have something to discuss. Uh, so there is a public interest in, in this attorney-client privilege. Um, that public interest is eroded when that attorney-client privilege is used to actually perpetrate a crime, okay. right? Because the idea of getting to a just result uh, is completely then undermined, right? Uh, right. If the purpose of the attorney-client privilege is to achieve justice, then you're not going to achieve justice if it's used as a shield to you know, commit crimes. So I, I imagine this is very difficult. But in my experience, a lot of the time when a, a defendant has fled uh, before or after conviction, the defense counsel on record really does not have any information as to where the client has gone. And that's because what they don't want to do is become a witness against their own client. Mm. Uh, uh, they don't want to be accused of uh, participating in what's essentially obstruction of justice. If you flee, you've obstructed justice, right? Like, like we cannot, like the wheels of justice have like ground to a, like a screeching halt, at least in terms of the conviction, because we can't proceed without you. Um, and so the defense counsel does not want to be part of a fugitive investigation where they've become a witness against their client. And so, uh, you know, often they will come up to court and they'll be like, I have no idea where they went. Last time I saw them was blah. Uh, and I don't, I have no idea. Right. Uh, and that's, uh, smart. <laughs> right. Um, uh, I, I haven't encountered a situation where defense counsel actually knows where they are and I know they know where they are. And uh, they, um, you, you know, we have to sort of lean upon the court and other process to get them to essentially disclose that to the court. Um, uh, there are situations where maybe there's evidence in the possession of defense counsel or evidence in the possession of some third party that may lead us to that, to the, to the fugitive's location. But that's different from defense counsel knowing and actively obstructing justice. Uh, and that would be a problem. That leads me to another question. So if for any reason, this uh, person who's been indicted, their defense attorney receives documents or some sort of information that makes it clear that their client is no longer, let's say, in Dubai, they've gotten something concrete that's like, no, they're in Colorado. Does the defense have to uh, give that over to the federal prosecutor? Um, get that information over. And this is not a trial. This is just they've been indicted, but it hasn't been brought to trial. In that situation, would a defense attorney have to hand that information over to your side, a federal prosecutor's side? I think so. We're getting into like a 
definitely a really gray area. And so I'm, I'm a little hesitant sure. um, because I think it really depends on the facts and what mm. has already been disclosed to the government. So um, like, let's say, for example, the government is aware of the person's location. Um, and that's sort of like everyone already knows where the person is. So the, the defense counsel is not really hiding information in that case, right? Um, if the government's not aware, then and the defense counsel is actively hiding, that that's a little murkier. Um, it, I think it also depends on the jurisdictions or the ethical obligations on defense counsel. Uh, as a prosecutor, if I think defense counsel's in possession of information, um, and is unlawfully in possession of information and is actively obstructing justice, then my next step, right, is obviously consult within DOJ to make sure that I am uh, complying with all internal DOJ policies because the, the realm of attorney-client privilege is, is a highly protected realm. And so I have to act very carefully to make sure I don't commit misconduct, right? Um, but assuming, like, I get all the necessary approvals within DOJ, I would then go to the court to get a uh, legal process to obtain the evidence or information um, that I need to effectuate an arrest. Gotcha. Uh, uh, it, I, I guess you could go directly to the defense counsel, but that seems kind of silly if I think defense counsel is actually committing a crime, <laughs> right? Like if they're actively and knowingly obstructing justice, then me go walking, walking up to them like, hey, can you give this information to me <laughs> showing that you've actively obstructed justice seems kind of silly. Right. Um, so uh, as a prosecutor, you, you would probably seek under seal uh, legal process from the court after obtaining all the necessary approvals within, so within the Department of Justice um, to obtain the evidence to then effectuate the arrest. Because the primary goal at this point is to arrest the fugitive. After that, you have to think about, well, what do I do with this information that this attorney may have committed a crime? And there's a couple of things that can happen. Um, one is, the first question is, um, can this attorney continue to represent this individual, right? Because now there's a conflict, a potential conflict of interest. Because defense counsel is now potentially part of a criminal conspiracy involving the defendant. And defense counsel may have an interest in cooperating against the defendant uh, it, it, to obtain a more lenient outcome on their own sort of criminal investigation, which is a direct conflict of interest, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, attorneys have a duty of loyalty to their client. So there's a potential conflict of interest there that has to be raised to the court and has to be sort of decided by the court as to whether or not they can continue representing the client. The client itself or themselves have to be, has to be, you know, sort of made aware of this potential conflict of interest and maybe they will waive it, you know, crazier things have happened, um, but it has to be a waivable conflict, right? Uh, and so there's, there's that, there's the potential conflict. And there's also the potential conflict between me uh, as somebody who is in this jurisdiction, in, in the Central District of California, and who deals with this attorney all the time. Like we often have what we call frequent flyers, like defense counsel that specialize in federal criminal law and specialize in fraud crimes. Um, and that's kind of awkward, right? Now I'm, mm -hmm. am, I, am I actually permitted to investigate uh, an attorney 
that has appeared and is going to be continually appearing on the opposite side of the courtroom on numerous matters, that's obviously improper, right? So then, you know, you usually sort of splice that off and give it to a different jurisdiction who does not have matters with this person to decide whether or not they want to prosecute. And I then have zero idea what the hell's happening, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, uh, there may be other considerations where I want to make sure that I actually don't have a bunch of cases with that attorney. Um, so there's a, a bunch of sort of complicated considerations that can happen after an arrest is effectuated, but, you know, eyes on the prize, <laughs> right. which is right. cuffs on the person, right? First. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. And I've just got a couple more questions. Is there, you know, in these types of cases, you know, we're about three years out from the indictment. Maybe, you know, this person is in Dubai, out of the country. Maybe they're not. But is there going to come a point where so, you know, enough time has passed that a federal prosecutor is going to get pressure to just drop it or do something to to get it to a conclusion after enough time has passed? Usually the question is staleness and notice, right? So, uh, and, but this is like, we're talking like years and years and years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a lot of cases that have actually gotten, gotten some more age on them than I think they would normally do because of COVID, right? There was, there was a period of time when trials were just not happening. Uh, and now trials are definitely back on. There's like so many trials happening right now I bet. Um, because of the backlog. Um, and so a, a case charged in 2018, 2019, still not yet being resolved is, is not unusual. That, I think that's, it, it's not great under normal times, but certainly in this sort of uh, COVID times, it is certainly not unusual. In fact, I would say that that's the norm, right? Got because it. Yeah. everything that got charged in 2019 or 2018 and you expected to go to trial did it because the courts were closed for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now the courts are open again and there's this huge backlog because let's say there's a case from 2017 that was supposed to go to trial in 2019. You know, that's a lower case number than the 2019 case, right? So like it, it, it's, it's going to be a while before the courts and the, the different offices work off this backlog. So there's that, the fact that like currently like something charged in 2018, 2019, that's actually not that old comparatively, okay. comparatively. That- uh, yeah. it, it, when we start talking about pressure to potentially like, um, and I'm not talking about pressure to, to find the person, right. There's always pressure to find the person because you, there's a reason why you charge the case. Right. Uh, and you don't want your evidence to go old and you presumably want to bring this person to justice. Um, but the point at which it starts getting to be a problem is when the evidence starts going stale. That's when you start really getting nervous. And obviously you're nervous before because you don't want your evidence to go stale. But at some point, like, let's say the key case agent is going to retire. Like, that's not great. Or not that I ever want this to happen, but the key case agent dies. No, now you've got your like key factual government witness is like no longer available. Right. Right. Uh, That's not great either. Right. Like in, 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 or you know, the, as I mentioned before, like records custodians, like go away, like business databases go away, like all sorts of things started happening. Uh, and that's a really big problem because again, it doesn't matter if you can spin a story that sounds great narratively about the story of this crime. 
if it's not admissible in court, it's useless, right? right. Like it's, I yeah. have to be able to prove it to a jury. Um, uh, and maybe that's a little harsh. It's not useless, but certainly it's not great. It, like you can't bring a conviction on that basis. Mm-hmm. Um, so staleness of the evidence. And then at some point you start having um, a notice problem, uh, which is, uh, it, you know, you have to be able to show, um, and this is probably not going to be a problem where they fled uh, uh, after being aware of a criminal investigation, but it can be a problem if, if there's no evidence that they were actually knowingly fleeing from the crime that was charged. Uh, and you have to prove that the defendant was on notice of the charges uh, at some point and sort of actively stayed away despite being on notice of the charges. And the longer the time period that passes, the harder it becomes to do that because, again, the evidence that you have to prove that up, um, you know, becomes stale. Uh, you, you start, you know, you have to continuously show that the government was taking steps to find this person um, during the period of their flight. Because otherwise, if they weren't actually fleeing from your charges, it's not really flight, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like, if the government just like stopped looking for this person five years in, and now ten years have passed, can you prove that they were actually fleeing from the government's investigation? The government did nothing to try and like look for them, right? So, um, the more time that passes, the more federal resources are expended, uh, and the more you have to do to sh- prove that actually they are still fleeing. They are still a fugitive under the technical sense, right? Um, and if you let too much time pass, it becomes, you know, a little bit more difficult to prove that because all the relevant stakeholders, all the relevant players have retired or they've been reassigned or other things. Right. So as a prosecutor, you have to stay on top of that. You have to, you know, be like, what have you done? How, how are we looking for this person? You know, how can we show that they're actively ev- evading us? Um, and you have to keep doing that, you know, every year. Uh, in order to make sure that your case can still be brought. Because let's say you do find them or they show up for whatever reason at LAX and somebody's like, oh, there's this like 20 year arrest warrant for you. You should probably arrest you. And all of a sudden they show up in court and you're like, oh, oh, hi. (laughs) Right. Um, Now you have to show that uh, they can bring a case saying seek dismissal of the indictment because they can be like, uh, the government really had, no intention of ever prosecuting this case because for the last 10 years, they've done zero. Got it. Um, And you don't want one of those challenges. Right. So um, there's always pressure to find the defendant and bring them home. But the longer the time that passes, the more difficult those issues become. And which is why really you want to bring, get cuffs on them and bring them here to face justice as quickly as possible. Okay. And, and do you think that, Uh, Because we always hear in like homicide cases, let's say a case goes cold. We always hear that, you know, the the victim's loved ones, if they are diligent and constantly calling that, you know, detective and that law enforcement agency saying, where's my update? What's going on? What's being done? That perhaps that could motivate law enforcement to go, okay, let's put this cold case back on the top of the list and let's start doing something because we're getting so much pressure over from over here from the, you know, victim's loved ones. Could that be a thing in a case like this? Like, let's say a podcast, you know, that enough people listen or there's enough victims out there and everybody kind of like, it just starts catching fire and the case starts 
getting a lot of attention. And then maybe people start contacting the FBI going, what's being done? Or maybe contacting the federal prosecutor's office. What is being done in this case? She's stolen millions. So would, could that potentially be a motivator for a federal prosecutor? And not saying that a federal prosecutor is not actively working it and doing their job, but just to kind of get a fire up their butt to go, you know what? Uh, all these people are talking about it now. It's the, the, the case has got so much attention. I really need to do more in this case. Could that happen? Have you seen it happen? Uh, I mean, a, I, I certainly have seen it like sort of colloquially, like in media and other reports. Um, I think it depends on the facts of the case, right? So, so for example, uh, like in those like Chinese bad actor cyber cases, right? Like it, it, it's, it's likely that the government never really had any hope of actually uh, getting, you know, hands on that person to bring them to trial. So like, pressure to bring them to trial may or may not work right Mm -hmm. um uh there's going to be a lot of like sort of international relations politics that are like dictating that that outcome that really are not in in directly in control but uh the u.s government isn't necessarily in control of those 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 factors um certainly victim impact is something that i as a prosecutor think about a lot uh because those are the people who are most directly harmed. And I, I want to keep their interests in mind, right? And so if the victim is telling me that this is an ongoing issue for them, this is mm-hmm. a problem for them, this is harming them psychologically in some way, obviously I'm going to be more motivated to address that particular issue than a victim who's like, eh, I could care less. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and so uh, because we're people too, but all, at the end of the day, we do this as a public service. You know, when I go to the courtroom, I say, you know, my name is Catherine on, on behalf of the United States. And when I say United States, obviously it's the government, but it, it, really it's the people, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm doing this for the community. Uh, and so if the impact on the community for a particular case is particularly egregious, I mean, as I sort of, we sort of talked about in the beginning, sort of the scope of the harm, that's going to be more important to me in terms of my priorities than something that like, you don't even know who was harmed, right? Sure. Or like half the victims are like, ah, I made money from that Tarot scheme. Eh. Yeah. And the other half of the victims are like, yeah, I lost money because it was inside a trady thing. And like half the people like benefited from the scam and half the people did it. Uh, but ultimately nobody really was like that seriously hurt, right? Uh, then you're more like, it's the moral of the thing. <laughs> sure, yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, obviously victim impact is, is an important consideration. And so to the extent that like that's articulated to the prosecutors, uh, that obviously is, is one of the driving factors. In terms okay. Of okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just wrap this up by asking you, what should I do? What action should I take if I get a tip that I think is helpful in the Mary Carroll case? You know, because, you know, of course, since, you know, publishing the podcast, um, people are listening and um, many, many people who knew her uh, or know somebody who does know her, uh, if I get what I think is a helpful tip, what should I do? Who sh- should I contact the federal prosecutor? Should I contact the FBI? Who could I pass it along to? Should I pass it along? Definitely. Uh, if you have information or evidence, you should bring it uh, to the attention of, uh, the federal government. And, uh, usually the first avenue is the FBI because, 
Um, the FBI are sort of the investigators, the collectors of fact. They can be witnesses. The last thing I want as a prosecutor is to become a witness in my own case. Mm. So if somebody comes to me and says, I have facts, I'm like, great, hold please. And I dial in <laughs> my agent <laughs> so that the agent can like be the sort of, you know, depository of fact. And I'm I just see. like a bystander. Um, uh, and, uh, but as a prosecutor, I definitely want to make sure that my prosecution team, which includes the agents, the investigators, um, as well as the other AUSAs, are in possession of all the relevant facts, right? Um, not only so that we can obviously prosecute the case, investigate the case, but so that we make sure that defendant and defense counsel also have the facts necessary uh, to be able to fully prepare for the case. Okay. Um, because um, I, as a prosecutor, have a bunch of like disclosure obligations. I'm not obligated to disclose things that I actually don't have possession of. Um, certainly, like, obviously, you can't give away, you can't disclose information you don't know, right? But I also don't want to be surprised at trial with facts that I don't know, because defense counsel may be listening to this podcast. Like, who knows? Defendant may be listening to this podcast. Sure. Uh, and um, uh, they may be aware of sources of information the government is not aware of. Uh, and then sort of uh, blindside the government at trial. And uh, that's not good for a number of reasons. One is um, the government's not prepared to address that information. It may be completely irrelevant to what's happening at trial, but it's distracting enough so that it confuses the jury, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and if the government's not aware, then you can't prepare for it. Um, worse is that let's say, uh, and I don't know, like I'm, I'm speaking sort of generally, worse is that it's, it's exculpatory. Hmm. Right. And I, as a prosecutor, um, I, I always want to know exculpatory information because a, my worst nightmare is to prosecute and successfully convict somebody who's innocent of a crime. Right. That's my worst nightmare. Hmm. Um, so if there's exculpatory facts, I want to know them. I want to know them because I want to make sure that I am complying with my ethical obligation to only prosecute crimes where I believe the crime occurred and I can prove it. Mm -hmm. uh, Second, obviously, I have a disclosure obligation, right? Um, and so uh, I want to make sure the defense is aware of that information because, I mean, I, as a prosecutor, I can do a lot. I have a lot of investigative tools um, at my disposal. So if I have a piece of exculpatory information, I can do a lot with that, right, uh, in terms of investigating it. But there is a reason why we have an adversarial system in the criminal justice process, right? Or I mean, it's not truly an adversarial system because ultimately my goal is not really conviction. My goal is to pursue justice. But defense counsel, um, I often, and this is why I, I like having good relationships with defense counsel. It's, it's not because I want them to pressure their client to receive, to like, like get a particular result. It's because I want to be able to trust when defense counsel comes to me and says, hey, I saw this in the discovery and I asked my client about it and I developed this additional information here's why I think my client is factually innocent. Mm. They have access to their client in a way that I don't, right? And so they have more information. They could do more follow-up more efficiently than maybe I can. And if they come to me and say, here are the reasons why my client is factually innocent, that's helpful to me because I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. Um, and if I trust defense counsel because we have a relationship and I know this person doesn't engage in BS. This person is an ethical person. 
within the confines of their you know duty of loyalty uh, to their client, that is meaningful to me. And I may, I may like a case where I think, oh, this person is like totally guilty. I, I may rethink my 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 theory of the case. More often, and this is particularly true for for women in financial crime or just women in crime in general, is that women are far more likely to be both uh, accomplices and perpetrators as well as victims in a, in a criminal investigation. Right? They may not be a victim of the crime that I'm investigating, but often, you know, if you think about like drivers of crime. For women, it's often unhealthy relationships, prior victimization, um, and other other sort of uh, sort of socioeconomic factors, much more predominantly for women than for men. Hmm. Right. So um, the defense counsel may come to me, and they may not say my client is factually innocent, but I followed up on that piece of information, and I realized that uh, actually she's in an abusive relationship with lead uh, def- lead defendant, or you know, really, this is, there's other things happening, right? And that might drive my decision on how to charge this person, whether a diversionary outcome is better for this person. Um, Because ultimately, I I don't want to just put this person in prison, right? That's not really my goal. My goal is justice, right? And, And public safety. And some of that is crafting a charge that fits that defendant for the outcome that we want, right? Which is ultimately, obviously, you know, you want to make the victims whole, you want to achieve justice, but also um, public safety is not just about like protecting the society from the defendant. It's also reducing recidivism, reduce, reducing the likelihood that this person will re-engage in crime. And I, as a prosecutor, can help shape better outcomes by how I decide to charge a case and the outcomes and sort of the sentences that I advocate for. So if I think that this person participate in this crime because they are essentially a victim of the lead defendant. And I know that because defense counsel has told me that with, you know, sort of believable, readily provable evidence, then I can come up with a better sort of and more fitting sort of charge and outcome than otherwise. If I just like throw this person in jail for like 20 years, I mean, what is that going to do? I mean, sure, it takes that person out of society for 20 years since they can't continue to perpetrate crimes. But what happens after 20 years? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I've complete if this person was driven by economic needs, they're not going to be better off economically after 20 years in prison. <laughs> right? right. Right. If the primary motivator is this person's um, tendency to sort of fall into unhealthy relationships. They go to prison for like, let's say, like two years. And I haven't really thought about that. And we haven't really sort of crafted outcomes to address that. What's going to happen after two years is they're going to fall right back into that unhealthy relationship, right? And more likely to recidivate. Right? So, so that's why, like, I, I often want to know exculpatory or even like, a, not necessarily excusing, but contextual information, and make sure that I, you know, arm defense counsel with it because I want to know what the response is. Sure. Um, Because ultimately, you know, I don't want to. Justice is not just about receiving a conviction and a sentence. Justice is about getting the right outcome. Absolutely. For that particular case. Yes. That particular defendant. Yes, absolutely. And since you brought that up, the female, you know, aspect of it, I do have one final point and question that I want to ask is, you know, in Mary Carroll's case, based on everything we've uncovered, it seems very clear that that's not the case with her that she it's it's she really is the primary you know conspirator 
fraudster, um, manipulator, like the orchestrator of, and I don't think it, I haven't uncovered anything that tells me that like some male uh, suspect is out there kind of like really just sort of like, she's just kind of going along with what he's doing because he's got control over her. And so I guess in that scenario, I mean, I would imagine it's much more rare. It seems that most, um, you know, uh, perpetrators of financial crimes are men. So that's part of what, and maybe I'm wrong, but, but that's part of what drew me to this case is that I thought it so fascinating that Mary Carroll uh, really does seem to be the primary orchestrator. She is, and she's been doing it for so long and, and unfortunately doing it very well um, and not under a man's control. And mm-hmm. to me, that seemed very much more rare uh, versus mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, Bernie, what, Bernie Madoff and all those types. I mean, that's a really big one, but it seems like these crimes are typically orchestrated by men. Is that, is that what you see as well? I think that, so the Sentencing Commission, the U.S. Sentencing Commission um, has fantastic data on this. Uh, and I should do the caveat, which is obviously sort of the data drives the conclusions. And so um, the Sentencing Commission looks at uh, convictions. And so that's obviously skewed towards the people that we caught, <laughs> right? Sure. Um, but the Sentencing Commission has fascinating data. So, I mean, the term fraud and economic crime is like incredibly broad, right? But, uh, and so there are certain types of crimes where there are more a higher percentage of female offenders. Um, but across the board, the majority of these types of economic crimes are perpetrated by men. And I think in like the securities fraud area, um, I think it's like like 90% of offenders were men. It makes sense. Um, and this is like FY 2020, I believe. Uh, and, uh, and I think if you look at sort of FY21, the uh, Sentencing Commission put out uh, sort of facts about female offenders and female offenders are generally have lower sentences, but also um, I think the majority of female offenders who receive lower sentences received something like a 61% reduction in their sentence, um, primarily due to substantial assistance, which means they cooperated with the government, which usually means that they were somehow... Um, they, they basically were an accomplice or something else, and they essentially cooperated. In, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. But, uh, but it, which usually, a lot, not all the time, but often means there's some kind of relationship there, right? Uh, sort, of, sort of driving, sort of thinking about the sort of primary motives for, for female uh, criminality, et cetera. Um, so you're 100% correct. Uh, the statistics put out by the Sentencing Commission absolutely show that women are much less likely to be uh, perpetrators of economic crime. And to the extent that they are perpetrators of economic crime um, or just perpetrators of crime in general, they're much more likely to um, receive lower sentences, um, usually as a result of cooperation with the government, um, uh, which is sort of an interesting sort of thing to think about. Uh, uh, so it is unusual, um, at least within the population of cases where we have identified a crime and brought a case and obtained a conviction to see sort of a woman at the top of a fraud scheme. Um, again, we can only, uh, we, well, we can only opine on what we see. So sure. I often, I often sort of uh, self-criticize by saying like, we often only get the ones that weren't the most intelligent. Right. So 
uh, if we were able to identify the crime, it may be that you are not the most sophisticated criminal in the history of humankind. Uh, Good point. And, yep. <laughs> and so, and so um, we can't, we don't know what we don't know. So it's possible that they're like the secret, uh, this, the secret reality is that women are actually just incredibly better <laughs> at perpetrating economic crime. I think crime. that's true. There's got to be stats on that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we don't see them. That's why they're not caught. That's, where they, that's why they're not in the statistics. But yeah. the statistics that we have show that it's by far the men. Okay. And, and it's, that's what's, you know, what is so additionally fascinating to me about Mary Carroll is that not only is it seem very clear that she was the primary, like she orchestrated all this, she was able to get very intelligent, seemingly successful people, AKA lawyers, and not just one, you know, she got Barry Rothman, it seems like to come in on the scam and help her out. She, it seems that she got another attorney potentially um, in on the scam to, to provide letters to financial institutions saying my, my client is worth all this money. And that was not true. So she's been able to sort of like bring into her, bring into her world, these other successful, smart men. And she's still here at the top. Like she seems to be the leader, but she's getting them to help her and, and give her an air of legitimacy and make her seem like this wealthy heiress and somebody she's not. So it's super fascinating to me uh, because I don't think you see that uh, uh, nearly as often, you know, to your point, mm -hmm. as far as what the statistics say. So it's really fascinating. But um, Catherine, the reason why we went over on time is because I have thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you. You have no idea how much you have opened up my mind and answered so many questions that I had. So. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. I have thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. So thank you. Well, this was a lot of fun. So thank you as well. Dirty Money Moves is a collaboration between Murderish and Cloud10 Media. Executive producers are myself, Jamie Rice, and Sim Sarna. Sean Bannon did the audio mixing and editing for this episode. Josh Cook composed the music. Brian Stefanik created the podcast cover art. And the podcast is co-produced by Cloud10 Media. Follow us at Dirty Money Moves on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. If you like the show, please do us the biggest favor by reviewing the podcast and leaving us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Because even four stars isn't good enough for the heiress. If you're into true crime, check out my other podcast, Murderish. If you have information about this story that you'd like to share, please visit Murderish.com and hit the contact button to send us an email. Also, if you or anyone you know have been scammed or were the victim of a white-collar crime and you'd like help getting answers or justice, please contact us via Murderish.com. We're looking for cases to cover in Season 2 of Dirty Money Moves. Thanks for listening and see you next week for a brand new episode. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.